0: You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric is with Hernandez Altema is here from NLC Maryland Class 2017, a recent fellow. Glad to catch up with her. She's working on some really interesting stuff. Let's get to it. All right, so before we started recording, you were talking a little bit about DC traffic. How do you think DC traffic and LA traffic compare to each other?
1: Um, I've only been to LA once. And so, and that traffic was terrible. Luckily, I was not driving. So I was merely a passenger. And so I definitely didn't, you know, first time being there, I was just looking around. But um, luckily, it was a short drive. So I didn't really have to endure too much (laughs) um, of that kind of traffic. But DC traffic is just crazy because of the loops and turns and just various potholes and just construction, everything under the sun happens in D.C. traffic.
0: <laughs> and then are you born and raised on the East Coast? How long have you been there?
1: Yes, I'm born and raised on the East Coast. I'm uh, first place is New York, and but I've been in Maryland since third grade. So I consider myself a Marylander um, to my heart and core
0: and soul. And for those that don't understand, how do you describe the differences between people who live in Maryland, Virginia, and the D.C. proper?
1: Well, Maryland... If you um, are really from the area, we really go by counties. And so we're diehard county people or or a certain territory you may really be a fan of. But D.C., they just represent D.C. all around (laughs) the entire territory. Um, But also there's a lot more transient people. So you never know who you're going to get. You might get someone who's from the east, from the west coast, or you might get someone from the south, um, midwest, or just international. So... But if you're a Marylander, you pretty much find people that are from around here um, and kind of know how to get around. But in D.C., you have so many more tourists, which kind of delay whatever you <laughs> want to get to.
0: I can believe it. And then how did you hear about NLC to begin with?
1: So I was recruited by another alumni. Um, he was in the class previously um, to mine. And we um, I used to work in politics, I used to be a chief of staff for four years, and Um, We had a mutual friend that introduced us because he had interest in running as a candidate and wanted to get the feel of like, what is it really down like to be in Annapolis? And um, so I was on the state side, on local government, um, state government. And so he, he knew that I had interest to... Um, really be into social entrepreneurship, and he was like, oh, you should really check out New Leaders um, Council because they really do have a part in politics, progressive, and just social entrepreneurship, so it's just everything combined, and so that's how I got introduced.
0: Nice. And then when people ask you what you do for a living these days, how do you usually answer the question?
1: Well, I'm newly minted lobbyist, um, oh. so... In Maryland, we um, have a, um, our legislature meets for three months, 90 days, which kind of adds up to three months. And so I um, am lobby during that time from April, from January to April. And then the rest of the time I work on public policy, really implementing the new laws that we have. So it's a totally new area when you're like working inside, you kind of get more you kind of get the feel of how you can move things along and you only have to work with one kind of set of people, which are normally the legislators. But when you're on this side of, as a lobbyist, you have to look at all parties. You don't want to leave anybody out because that could be someone who can like come around the bend and kill a bill. (laughs) So. um,
0: So what's the best way to maintain relationships that you found so that you can make sure if you shoot off an email or make a phone call, people will respond back to you.
1: Well, so I, In my new position as a mental health advocate, I have a lot of coalitions that I um, lead on behalf of my organization. So we kind of look for those partnerships to see what common ground we have. And so much of the conversations are done in the interim. That's what we call when we're out of session, the interim of finding out what potential differences and similarities we may have. And that is usually ironed out so we don't have to have these challenges um, with legislation or passing them when it comes to the session. And so that's normally where we um, figure out how to um, build our partnerships. Um, But we always you know, I think since I'm new, I'm always forgetting something because there's you never know who it's going to impact because there's like one section of an of an organization that it impacts, but you weren't thinking of them in advance. But luckily, we have coalition mem- have members are part of the coalition, so they may think of people that I may not even you know might not cross my mind.
0: And then, as far as mental health, what do you feel like the state is doing well right now, and what are you trying to change or improve?
1: Well, so luckily, I um. What I hear and what I have noticed is that Maryland is a really uh, is really um, moving in the progress is moving in direction of helping any and all people that might have a mental health illness or uh, or disorder, and so we don't have to really. Uh, well, th- let me go back a little bit because what's really happening is that um, my organization had five priorities, and we got all five of them. So we had thirty million dollars in funding for mental health, and so it's like a sweep that we had. It was a really big shift because mental health has not seen that kind of financial investment, and so it's spanned from crisis services, um, spanned from collaborative care, which means that what you would happen, what would happen is primary care settings are like the initial. Um, start of when someone says, hey, I'm feeling kind of weird. I feel like I'm depressed or have anxiety. So that that kind of introduction where you tell your primary care what's going on, we're put, putting more funding into that. And then for children's, children's behavioral health has also kind of been lacking. Um, and so what you notice is when children are acting out in school, there's all these other underlying layers. And now there's going to be data collection and trying to figure out what, what jurisdiction is having these issues, where they're having these issues, how come there's all these readmissions in hospitals. So it's really moving in the direction of really recognizing that this is part of your overall health care. And so we're in a great time period when it comes to mental health to really move forward in all for all various peoples. And so it's, 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 I'm excited just because I it's a, a slam dunk thus far, but we're just going to make it a slam dunk every year.
0: And then if, in your mind, then, what makes a great politician or legislature? Because now that you're interacting with folks in these ways, what traits and people do you now really want to see when you make uh, votes down the road or when you're encouraging other people to run or if you even consider yourself running? Like, What are the things that really stand out to you when people do the job well?
1: So working for a state senator really taught me um, what passion um um, what, how you can really detect if the, a, a senator is just going through the ropes to get the vote or they really are concerned about it. And so what I noticed with the senator I work for, um, she was everywhere. Um, she knew her her you know, each county. She knew people within the school. Um, and, and the thing is, many times people would call us out of the district and say, hey, I know your senator really works on this issue. Can we get her on our team? I'm not her constituent. Can she really help me? And then we end up helping them as well. And so it's when you, I think a good legislator or a good politician is when others feel that they can benefit from you, even if they don't get to have your vote. Um, in the long run. Right. And so we were able to, I mean, of course you try to have professional courtesy and not help those individuals um, all the time and try to, you know, refer it back to their original um, legislator, but to know that you are a champion in issues um, no matter where your um, constituents are uh, is is really good for a, a legislator. And I would also have to say the other part about it is just fighting for a cause where you might just have, Not not be in agreement with your party. And so um, my senator that I worked for was um, had a lot of Republicans in her district. So, you know, she came from a district where and she was a Democrat and she came from a district where she did have to because it aligned with her constituents, aligned with her own um, values, that she did vote a certain way. Um, And but, you know, it wasn't all often, but it really does go to show that she thought about her constituents, thought about what was going on. Um, And really did that analysis of how it it would impact the overall, you know, state as well as her constituents.
0: Makes sense. When When we come back, we'll hear a little bit more about something else that our great guest today is working on. Stay tuned. All right. Tell me a little bit about First Gen Rise.
1: So first in rise is a blog that really targets first-generation Americans, first-generation college students, grad, graduate students, and professionals. Um, I have, I am all three. Um, so I'm a first-generation college student, first-generation graduate student, law student, and now a first-generation professional. So there's lots of things that first-gens don't know when they're in academia, and there's lots more things that they don't know when they are in um, the professional world, whatever profession they do choose. And so what First Gen Rise, the, blo- the blog, has allowed, Um, For is this platform for others who identify as first gen to get resources in how to excel when they're in school, how to interact with their professors, how to interact with their supervisors, how to interact with other people, and how to really embrace this identity of being a first gen. It's really about uplifting and actually getting you to understand that there are rules of engagement when you're trying to be in this world with whatever profession you're in.
0: Yeah, what's been the best way for you to promote the blog and get the word out?
1: So NLC has been helpful. Sure, um, I um, thankfully, um, when I started the blog the year prior to joining um, NLC or be, um, participating in the fellowship, and um, that year is when I decided I wanted to write a book. And so, what has been really helpful is you know with NLC you have your capstone project, and with that I um, had the timeline to. I created a timeline to write my first book. And I had much of the content on the blog, but I really didn't have a lot of the middle, which is the essence of what an, what a first gen is. And um, luckily, one of the fellows in the class knew someone in higher education and reviewed my book. And since then, that person has been truly an advocate. So now I have received a bulk order from that prestigious oh, wow. institution and for their first-gen class. So it's about 50 copies, which is great for me. Um, I never even, you know, unfortunately being a first-gen, you kind of think kind of small. <laughs> um, so it was just great to have a bulk order of 50 copies at a prestigious higher ed. And since then, they're trying to now work into their curriculum in the first-gen um Program how to have me be part of it, um, and also how to get them to interact with or um, be guest bloggers on my blog. And so that has kind of leapfrogged into other institutions reaching out to me, um, the high schools reaching out to me, and just that and public publicizing it on Twitter and and Instagram and just you know word of mouth. So it's been really really amazing thus far.
0: I'm, I'm always really impressed with folks who can see a book process all the way through, when you think back to putting all that together, what was the, what was actually the most challenging part of the mechanics of writing a full-length book?
1: Well, you know, I recently had a book signing April 15, and the moderator asked this a similar question. And, um, and for me, it really was being vulnerable. You know, growing up, we were allowed, we, I was raised not to um, share as much as I shared in the book. I really share... <laughs> How much um, loss and 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 sadness and just vulnerability I had um, while growing up, and so you know, as so many times I had reflect, um, kind of like repressed those thoughts, but I really had to reach down deep and really pull them out so that people can connect with it and what I've noticed is that people do connect with the story because it's so real in their own lives. And so that was what really was hard for me is really, really opening up and kind of those wounds that I did not really heal um, to put it on paper.
0: And if you could make any significant or very substantial institutional changes, let's say in the college setting so that first gen students are are better set up to, to go to and through college and grad school and beyond. But what are some of the the foundational institu- institutional things that need to change to make that happen?
1: Um, you know, I think what I I, um, I think what I'm starting to see and and what I'm starting to um, uh, you know really advocate for is bringing in the the class prior. You know, so I think you know when people start a first generation kind of campus program, or um, in my law school, we had an actual campus group that was first generation, but they really didn't keep it active. I think this inst- higher ed institutions need to make a concerted effort to really identify this group and speak to the students that need that Extra attention, um, because once you get them in, it's it's great. It's wonderful to say like I have twenty percent of my class is first gens. But when you don't sit down with them and ask them, so what are you having uh, the biggest issues? You know, talk to them and really discuss. You know, who are your who are your teachers? Have you met with your teachers? Have you looked at practice exams? Have you looked at you know reaching out to the career services? Because to be honest, the goal of going to college is also being able to have. Um, something after college. And so that really should be considered is not only getting them into the door, but through, like you stated, by checking in with them. Yeah, it'll be annoying for them, but in the end it'll be much better because they don't, I think first gens don't know what to ask. So they're never going to come to you and ask you something that they have no idea where to start from. So you do have to be a little bit more diligent. It might be a little bit, um, cumbersome for you to do the institution to do that. But you, if you want to have first gens feel empowered, you have to be on top of it a little bit more.
0: Nice. Well, listen, give us a scoop. How can we uh, follow the blog? How can we find your book? What's the best way to uh, support you?
1: Yes. Yeah. So the um, first, let me go back. Cause I'd never, you know, thanked you to um, for being on the show. And I really do appreciate having um, this opportunity to chat with you. Um, <laughs> Of course. And so now where I can be found. I am on Facebook, um, Twitter, Instagram. I have a YouTube channel under First Gen Rise. So that's first F I R S T G E N R I S E. And the website is the same spelling, firstgenrise.com. And I can't wait to see you there.
0: Sounds good. We'll make sure to put that in the info for the episode. And thanks for coming on. Thanks for everyone for listening to another Great episode of The Zag. You can find all past ones, and there's a lot, over 70, in the iTunes Store, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. You can find it. More episodes coming later this week. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you soon.